Well, let's pray together, shall we? Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we so need your help both to understand your word and to live in the light of it. And so we pray for your spirit to be our teacher, that he would lead us to the Lord Jesus and that our confidence might be renewed and refreshed in him and that we would bring honour and glory to you as our Heavenly Father. For your name's sake. Amen. Well, let me begin with a question. To what are you devoted? What matters most? That was the question that came up uh, recently in the morning Bible study that I was doing with my son. We were doing this sort of catechism thing. And uh, one of the questions was, what matters most? What things, what people matter most? And uh, his six-year-old brow furrowed, and he thought, and he thought, and he thought some more. And you begin to wonder what great wisdom is going to pour from the lips of this young child, you know, son of a clergyman and mission partner and all those sorts of things. Well, after much mulling, he finally announced that the most important thing in his life was Tuffy. (laughs) Tuffy was the most important thing in his life. Now, seeing that his honesty had obviously rather taken me by surprise, uh, he quickly announced a few other things that were very important in his life. Which were what? The PlayStation, of course. A friend. And then he remembered the right answer, the expected answer, God. So the creator of the entire universe comes in fourth. Out of the the medal rankings, but doubtless consoled by the fact that he only just missed bronze. Of course, children's disarming candor reveals the reality that we as adults are often better at hiding. What matters most? Well, lots of things matter. Lots of good things matter. And yes, God is in there somewhere, but he's often something of an afterthought, isn't he? Now, we know he's the right answer, he's the expected answer, but the reality is that he comes somewhere behind family and career and homes. All of which is actually a far cry from the testimony of David in 1 Chronicles 29. So if you can turn back to that, to page 434 in the Church Bibles, to 1 Chronicles 29. David was one of the greatest kings in the Old Testament. And for him, the thing that he was devoted to, you read in verse, actually in verse 3, if you just turn back a little bit to the beginning of the chapter, David was devoted to the temple of God. He says, Besides, in my devotion to the temple of my God, I now give my personal treasures of gold and silver for the temple of my God. David was devoted to the temple of God, which was a commitment was actually less to do with real estate and more to do with relationships. To be devoted to the temple of God in the Old Testament was, if you look down to the end of verse 5, it was to consecrate yourself to the Lord. It was for David a way of investing in the kingdom of God. 
So David prays the second half of verse 11. David prays, yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. So why study 1 Chronicles 29 today? Well, because today is our mission partner's gift day, and 1 Chronicles 29, if you read the detail of it, is the mother of all gift days. David and the people's devotion to the temple was demonstrated in the generosity of their giving. David gave. The people gave. And the extraordinary gifts that people gave must have kept the temple treasurer busy for weeks. There was gold and silver and bronze, precious stones, all in abundance. And so verse 9, the people rejoiced at the willing response of their leaders, for they had given freely and wholeheartedly to the temple. Well, yes, to the temple, but actually they had given freely and wholeheartedly to the Lord. So unsurprisingly, then, this is a sermon about giving. Now, because it may well be that you're a guest here today and you're very welcome, as Paul says, amongst us. But we don't want your money. As Christians, we believe that the Bible has something to say about the whole of our lives, including where we invest our money. So by all means, listen in. But actually, we'd rather you took some money out of the collection bag than feel under any obligation to put something in. I think there are lessons that we can learn from 1 Chronicles 29, from the people and David's devotion to and gifts for the temple in Jerusalem. But you actually need to ask a prior question. What does it mean to be a temple builder today, 2008? If you understand the purpose of the Old Testament temple, you'll see that the temple, even back then, was more than a building, more than stone and wood. The Old Testament temple building represented... People in relationship with the living God. And the Old Testament temple points to and finds its fulfillment in the New Testament church. Not the building, the bricks and mortar, but the people. So you remember in John chapter 2, Jesus announces that he is the true temple. And through faith in him, we are incorporated, we are united into that temple such that we become part of God's house. Just one cross-reference. Keep a finger in 1 Chronicles 29 and turn to page 1218 in the Church Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. Page 1218. Jesus says he is the true temple to which the Old Testament pointed. And when believers trust him, they become part of God's living temple, the church. So Peter writes, 1 Peter 2, verse 4, As you come to him, that is Jesus, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, as you come to Jesus, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So to, to, be, to, to be devoted to the temple now is to, to, be, is to be devoted to Christ and the church. Which again, is not about buildings so much as relationships. It's about men and women coming to trust Christ for themselves and so being built into the living 
temple that serves the world, that is, the church. So come back then to 1 Chronicles 29 and to the lessons from the greatest Old Testament builder, David. See, David is devoted to the temple because he is, verse 11, he's concerned about the kingdom of God. And now that Christ the King has come, the kingdom of God is extended through building the church, through the living temple, which is why it remains so important for us to be devoted to the house of God, not to the building itself, but to the building of people through the proclamation of the message of Jesus. David's prayer is a reflection of his priorities. Uh, you read the revenue that came in on this gift day in 1 Chronicles 29, you have to conclude that David was the greatest fundraiser imaginable. For not only did the people give generously, they also did willingly and with great joy. Verse 9, the people rejoiced at the willing response of their leaders, for they had given freely and wholeheartedly to the Lord. David the king also rejoiced greatly. See, here was a generous gift day that was motivated by gratitude and not guilt. So three lessons that we can learn from David from the three sections of his prayer here. Number one, understand that the Lord owns and rules the world. Verses 10 to 13. Understand that the Lord owns and rules the world. What is so striking about the opening of David's prayer is his consuming vision for the greatness of God. The end of verse 10. Praise be to you, O Lord, God of our father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor. Now, of course, all religions claim their God is great. What kind of religion would say that their God or their gods was only average? Now, who's going to tell the world that their God is okay, he's working towards greatness, but he's not there yet? See, what makes David's words anything more than the religious rhetoric of one more religious fundamentalist? Well, the difference is that when David speaks of God, he addresses in verse 10 as the Lord, which is Bible shorthand for the God who makes promises and keeps them in time, space, history. See, the God who acted in real history to bring Israel from Egypt to the promised land is the same God who acted in history, in Jesus, to bring hell-bound sinners to the new creation. And Jesus is great and powerful and glorious and majestic because he was crucified and truly risen at a real point in history. See, David understood that the God who had made the world that has been undone by sin is the same God that promised to remake the world. And this world, the world that God has made and remade in Christ, this world is a world that he owns completely and rules comprehensively, verse 11. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power, and the glory, and the majesty, and the splendor. For everything in heaven and earth is yours. God owns everything. 
Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Understand that the Lord owns and rules the world. Now, of course, people don't believe that today, do they? People don't believe that the Lord owns and rules the world. It's the title of Christopher Hitchens' most recent book, God is Not Great. According to Professor Lewis Wolpert, God doesn't even exist. Wolpert says there is absolutely no evidence for the existence of God, just as there is no evidence for fairies at the bottom of the garden. But if militant atheism dismisses the God of the Bible, there are plenty of other people who displace him with idols of their own making. You know the kind of, I like to see God like this type of comment. Or as Jasper Ford puts it in his novels, what the world needs is a GSD, a global standard deity. Now, God who's made up of all the best bits of the world's different religions. But David insists that it is the Lord, the God who makes and keeps promises in real history. It is the Lord who is great and powerful and glorious and victorious and majestic. And it is the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ in history that is the ultimate evidence of that truth. And yet, of course, the truth is that even for those of us who are believers here this morning, the Lord may not be um, dismissed or displaced, but he is invariably diminished Often it's just the burden of circumstance, isn't it? It's the burden of circumstance that clouds our vision of God's supreme greatness. That's the pressure of work. It's the strain of family life. It's concerns about health. The distraction of life's interminable busyness. And amidst it all, you can find yourself asking the question, Is the Lord really great and powerful and majestic and victorious? Is he really all these things? Because sometimes in my life, it doesn't feel like that. Which is why we need to be reminded from 1 Chronicles 29 afresh that the Lord, Yahweh, the God who makes promises and really keeps them, is the Lord who owns and rules the world. And so we can trust him. And we can know without a shadow of a doubt that if we trust Christ, our eternal security is safe. And of course, if we know that, in gratitude we will be devoted to the temple. We will be devoted to the house of God. Not to building a building, but to building a people. The living temple through the proclamation of the gospel. And knowing that, you will, like David, give freely and wholeheartedly to the work of the gospel. Understand, the Lord owns and rules the world. Secondly, verses 14 to 16. Understand that we depend on the Lord for everything. Understand that we depend on the Lord for everything. Of course, it follows that if the Lord owns everything and rules everything, that whatever we have must have come from him. So David says, verse 12, wealth and honour come from you. 
And yet, as with so much in the Bible, it's, it's one thing to know it in theory, because it's quite another thing to trust it in practice, isn't it? But for David, there is a profound understanding of his dependence, that he depended on the Lord for everything. He understood that even what he gave to the building of the temple wasn't his by right. It was the gift of an astonishingly generous God. So you see the question that David asked in verse 14. Who am I? And who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you. And we have given you only what comes from your hand. I think that's not generally the way we tend to think, is it? Certainly not the way I tend to think. Relative wealth and comfort can be a great blessing, but they can also be seductive and deceptive. Seductive and deceptive because we really do believe that we are independent, not dependent. In the words of Bart Simpson, you know, the Simpsons characters, Bart Simpson's famous mealtime grace, where Bart Simpson sits down with the family and says, Dear God, we pay for all this stuff ourselves, so thanks for nothing. See, we easily think that we don't need God for anything. Indeed, we tend to think quite the opposite, that the Lord needs us. So the collection plate that we'll go around later is some sort of divine begging bowl. An opportunity to do my bit for charity. Help the aged deity with a little bit of loose change. But David understood that the Lord owns and rules the world. As the Lord himself puts it in Psalm 50. I don't need your gifts. Cattle on a thousand hills are mine. No, the Lord owns and rules the world, and we depend on him for everything. And even as we give, we give only what the Lord has already given to us, verse 16. O Lord our God, as for all this abundance that we have provided for building you a temple for your holy name, it comes from your hand, and all of it belongs to you. Understand that we depend on the Lord for everything. I guess if you're not a follower of the Lord Jesus this morning, you probably wouldn't agree with that. That was certainly the question of a student who was asking questions at a Grilla Christian event I helped out with at Sheffield University a few months back. Grilla Christian is is an event where students who are not Christians are invited uh, by their Christian friends to grill a panel of Christian believers with any question they like. And I was on a panel with um, Dave Todd and Tim Dennis, who many of you will know. And one of the students asked a very honest, if rather blunt, question. I have managed perfectly well without God for the last 20 years. Why do I need him now? That was honest, if a little blunt. Well, Dave Todd's answer was as honest and straight as the question. He said this. Your every breath for the last 20 years has been the gift of the God you say you do not need. The very fact that you can ask the question 
is only because he has given you life and breath so to do. Understand that we depend on the Lord for everything. And that's no less true for those of us who are believers, is it? Our our life, our breath, our intelligence, our gifts, our homes, and yes, our money. Everything we have, everything we have comes from the Lord. And of course, what he gives, he can take away. You know, the Bible is clear that everything God has created is good and it is to be received with thanksgiving. We can enjoy the Lord's gifts without feeling guilty. The kind of attitude that says everything in this life won't last so it's unimportant. It might sound spiritual, but it's not true. And it dishonours the Lord. We are to be thankful, not thankless, as we receive the gifts of God's creation. Nevertheless, this world is not my final home. And that was something David understood. I think verse 15 is actually quite a surprise. I don't know whether you noticed it. You remember that for those who were outside of Israel, they were aliens and strangers. And yet here was David, the king, living in the promised land... And he still understood that he was, verse 15, an alien and stranger in God's sight. That his days on earth were like a shadow. That this life, good though it is, is all too brief. And so we ought, as Jesus said, to store up for ourselves treasures not on earth where moth and rust destroy. Rather, we should store up treasure in heaven. For where our treasure is, there will be our heart also. So, understand that the Lord owns and rules the world. Understand that we depend on the Lord for everything. And thirdly and finally, understand that your heart matters most. Verses 17 to 20. Understand that your heart matters most, not just for today, but forever. See, giving that is motivated by guilt and not gratitude, giving that results in regret and not joy, that kind of giving is unsustainable. I'm sure that I have used it as an illustration before, so forgive me if you do know it, but there's a great bit in one of Garrison Keillor's short stories where Clarence Bunsen is sat in church writing a check out for the collection. Somebody has already stared at him because they think he's writing in the Bible and you're not supposed to do that. And having written the cheque, he then tries to tear it out of his chequebook. Keeler writes this, Clarence tried to tear the cheque quietly out of the chequebook. There's no worse sound in the sanctuary than a cheque ripping. His cheque wouldn't come quietly. The first half-inch rip sounded like plywood being torn from the wall. So he waited for the pastor to launch into a strong sentence of fervent prayer to cover up the check removal. But Pastor Inguist was pausing at odd points. So Clarence couldn't tell when it was safe or when suddenly he would be ripping in the middle of pure, holy silence. Well, eventually he rips the check and folds it. And then as he puts the check into the collection, 
he suddenly realises that because he was writing the cheque with his eyes averted, he has actually written the cheque for more than he intended to. He's put an additional zero on. And in a state of mild panic, he reflects, could a man sneak downstairs after church and find the deacons collecting the, counting the collection and say, fellows, there's been a terrible mistake. I gave more than I really wanted to. You see, giving that is motivated by guilt and not gratitude. Giving that results in regret and not joy. That kind of giving is unsustainable. That's why your heart matters most. Not just for today, but forever. So it's striking how David finishes his prayer. For it is a prayer for a reformed heart. Heart is mentioned five times in four verses. Verse 17, I know, my God, that you test the heart and are pleased with integrity. All these things have I given willingly and with honest intent, or you could translate that, in uprightness of my heart. And now I have seen with joy how willingly your people who are here have given to you. And then this great prayer, verse 18. O Lord, God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, keep this desire in the hearts of your people forever and keep their hearts loyal to you. A heart in the Bible, of course, is not just the centre of emotions as it tends to be for us. It's the centre of the whole person. Heart is the centre of emotions, mind and will. And what matters most is that the gospel has changed and goes on changing my heart. Now, it's true that when we trust Christ, God gives us a new heart. But even new hearts need guarding. So the writer of Proverbs says, Above all else, guard your heart. It is the wellspring of your life. So on this momentous gift day, David and the people give as they are able, willingly and with joy to the Lord, verse 17. But David prays, verse 18, that the Lord would keep the same desire in the hearts of his people forever. See, it's our heart that matters. That we give out of gratitude, not guilt. That our vision is shaped by what will be in God's purposes, not what we will have lost in this all-too-fleeting world. And it is only a heart that is changed and renewed by the gospel that will give what it cannot keep to gain what it cannot lose. I was wondering as I read this chapter whether the amazing generosity of the people here would have seemed foolish in the eyes of the watching world. After all, when there were so many gods in the ancient world, why such extravagance in the building of just one temple to one god? Certainly the generosity of the New Testament people of God, certainly the generosity of God's people in building the church seems foolish to the watching world today. If you're a believer, your friends and family think you're completely mad giving to the work of the gospel. And why support a family like the Mangles laboring away to translate the Bible in Turkey? Why get behind the team at the Oaks as they try and teach hundreds of children about the Lord Jesus? Why support a family like the Rogers working as tent makers in Central Asia and secretly sharing the message of Jesus? Why? 
The message of the cross is foolishness to the watching world. Indeed, for any of us, whether we stay or go, why do any of us seek to share the good news about Jesus with our family and our friends and our work colleagues? Seems foolish, doesn't it? Until you remember that Christ the King has come. That he owns and rules the world. That everything we have comes from him. And so knowing that, knowing that his kingdom is extended through the work of the church, we need ever renewed hearts. Hearts that are devoted to the house of God. Hearts that are devoted to the building, not of a building, but to the building of a people through the proclamation of the message of Jesus. And so I think the end of 1 Chronicles 29 as we finish is a helpful reminder that whatever we're able to give towards this year's Mission Partners Gift Day, whatever we're able to give in our time, our prayers, our money, whatever we are able to give, it is our hearts that matter most. Not just today, but forever. Well, let's pray, shall we? Praise be to you, O Lord, God of our Father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor, for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. Amen.